Welcome back. This is Taking Care of Business. I'm Rob Rose. And I'm Julieta Televi. Despite plenty of opposition from banks and retailers, Union Power has helped push through the debt relief bill, which was signed into law by President Cyril Ramaphosa three weeks ago. Cass, welcome to the studio. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Cass Kavadia is, of course, the head of the Banking Association of South Africa. Cass, I was going to ask, this debt relief bill, I mean, primarily, I suppose, it was it was pushed forward to, to solve a problem we have in society. What was that problem? What was the initial plan, for, or, the, or, or I suppose the rationale behind the debt relief bill? Well, firstly, I think it's important to note that it was a committee bill, right? So the department did not see it necessary to have a bill which essentially is to address over-indebtedness amongst low-income borrowers. Which department are you talking about? Trade and industry? Trade and industry. So Department of Trade and Industry did not see it necessary to introduce a bill or introduce any legislation for that because there is legislation Hmm. to take care of reckless lending and there are restructuring, debt restructuring programs and mechanisms in the industry to deal with over-indebted people. The and com- that, that would be the National Credit Act? That would be, the, well, the National Credit Act has the legislation to deal with reckless credit. There's a voluntary industry scheme, and when I say industry, the entire credit industry, that's been working to look at debt restructuring, and each of the banks have debt restructuring programs. Okay, so over the last two to three years, banks have probably restructured and written off about 30-odd billion rand worth of debt. The committee, the DTI Portfolio Committee in its wisdom decided they want to introduce this bill. When they decided to do that, we took the view with them that we don't think it's necessary, that what would be most appropriate is for the credit regulator, which had been sort of blowing hot and cold on the industry restructuring scheme, that if the credit regulator supported that scheme and made it a condition of licensing with the credit regulator, that lenders use that scheme to actually restructure, that scheme would get up to scale and would actually work. And mm-hmm. and that restructuring scheme well went well beyond what the NCA asks lenders to do. So what okay. was the rationale of a portfolio committee in launching this? Well, that's, that's what we've been trying to understand. Um, it, it certainly does not, in our view, help the lending industry, the credit industry, because what essentially happens is that it brings risk into the system, which then means that banks will either reduce substantially their exposure to low-income borrowers, as Capitec, in anticipation of the bill, has already done. And if they do lend, the cost of the lending will go up to actually cover for the risk, additional risk. Um, Kaz, can you just talk about introducing the risk? Because, I mean, Maya Fresher French actually wrote um, an article on this, quite a comprehensive piece for City Press last year, and she said, um, it's important to understand this bill is not going to automatically expunge debt. It's simply a mechanism to provide debt review at no charge to the individuals earning less than 7,500 rand per month with unsecured debts of up to 50,000 rand. Um, And the process can take years before it can take up to 24 months um, while someone's in debt review. So... I mean, how much risk realistically does it actually add to the banking sector or to the retail industry? Well, it's uncertainty that brings the risk. So so it's an open-ended process. 
number one. Number two, the minister is given unfettered powers to actually uh, 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 change that threshold. That should the be a problem. Of trade minister of Trade and Industry. We should get Des van Rooyen back in and see how that works out for us all. Okay, so, so it's, it's the uncertainty. If, if the bill said, these are the number of people currently under over-indebted, these are the number of people we want to deal with, this is how we're going to deal with them, over 24 months, done. No powers to the minister to change things, and no powers to the minister to actually declare people over-indebted and so on. Then, then there's certainty. Banks know that within the parameters of that certainty, they need to do business. Mm. What this thing does, it brings a lot of uncertainty into the system. And it's that uncertainty that actually brings in the risk to the system. Okay? okay? And, and I think the other thing that people need to understand is that whether we like it or not, banks in this country are subject to international best practice cutting edge bank regulation. That's what our regulators, the Reserve Bank want, and that's what Treasury wants, right? Basel Isn't what the Guptas want? Just because I'm an Indian, you ask me about my Guptas. <laughs> <laughs> no, they have a few run-ins with banks. Uh, Shocked pause before the laughter. <laughs> I even forgot it's about that. Bank of I even Africa. forgot about that, guys. I mean, you know, there's been people since the Gupta. Right? Uh, so, so maybe the Watsons need a bank account. <laughs> they need debt relief. No, don't speak ill of the dead, Rob. <laughs> uh, so, so, what Basel III actually does is that if banks expose themselves to lending that is considered by Basel III regulation to be substantially risky, then banks have to reserve more capital with the Reserve Bank. That takes capital out of the system, which could actually be lent for productive use and so on and so on. Mm. So, so this just introduces a whole range of issues that if there was a real problem, one could consider. Okay, But given that there are bank mechanisms and there's an industry mechanism that was put into place because the credit industry took the view that it is not in their business interest, it is not in the political interest to take a whole lot of people to court and use a court process. We also appreciated that many over-indebted people have between 11 to 13 credit agreements. Okay. Now, which is insane. Which is insane, right? Which is insane. So, so if you have 11 to 13 credit agreements, you've got to get agreement from all those borrow lenders to actually restructure and get a restructured deal, right? We had gone a long way because I chair something called the National Industry Steering, Steering Committee, which has a representation from all the associations representing the entire credit industry. All of those associations had bought into that mechanism, mm. which means that all creditors say that if you use that, if debt counselors use that mechanism to restructure over-indebted loans, all credit, creditors will buy into it. You then agree the, agree the restructure package. You take it to court. You get a court order, no, no, dif- no contestations, and, and you do that. So, so if there wasn't these mechanism, then, then there could have been some rationale yeah. for the bill. Um, the other interesting thing is that <clears throat> the Portfolio Commission, uh, Committee commissioned um, 
an a socio-economic impact study, yeah. um, which they have to do when they introduce yeah. new legislation. But no one, as far as we can gather, has seen the study. Um, and we also understand from insiders that the DTI has apparently washed its hand of, this, of the study, which has now been completed. Have you had a look at it? And is that problematic for you that no one's actually had mm. access to the study? We haven't had a look at it, but we were, the consultants did come and speak to us. And the study was actually commissioned virtually on at the last minute that this process had unfolded. I mean, this process took about two years, right? The consultants came to see us because they said they've only been asked to do this now. When the, de- when the portfolio committee had been through its entire process to actually do this bill. So, so I, in fact, put to the consultants, I mean, why are you wasting my time? And they said, look, they're man- they've been given this mandate now. Mm. And I said, so is this a whitewash? They said, they can't say. Uh, Nobody but, but, ever says yes but, to whitewash. But, but we did a substantive socioeconomic assessment well, bef- quite early in the process, which we gave to the portfolio committee, which we also gave to the president when we petitioned him not to sign the bill. So, so I, I think that the process, although, let me put one thing on the table. Over the two odd years that the DTR Portfolio Committee managed this, I've got to be quite clear that we had significant interaction with them. I, I can't complain about that. They put together a technical team. We interacted with the technical team quite a bit. We gave them a lot of information and so on. The problem we had is that they didn't take into account what the socioeconomic impact assessment said and so on, and the bill came out the way it was, and that's why we petitioned the president. So I speak to my children the whole time, but they just flatly ignore me, pretend I'm not there, so it sounds like a similar scenario. But yeah. in this case, what did your socioeconomic study find? Well, we looked, we found that, that there'd be close on to 20-odd billion rands uh, exposure that banks have just on current clients. Potential to be written off. Potential to be written off. Just banks or retailers as banks, well? Banks, 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 yeah. This was a socioeconomic impact study on the impact on banks. Uh, and, and, and you know, the socioeconomic impact study also looked at this process and, and looked at risk and it talked about the uncertainty of the process, the open-endedness of the process and the risk it brings into the system. Did um, and that your con- you, I suppose your interaction with the consultants on this, the Genesis Analytics guys. What did um, what did they find in terms of your interactions with them? What did they tell you they had found? They didn't. Okay, so in fact they we were have they were still. I mean they they hadn't completed the socioeconomic impact study when they came to see us, obviously, because they spoke to us as part of doing the socioeconomic impact study. We then also told them that we've done a lot of work and we can make that work available to them if they like, and we did that as well. Uh, so, so you know, quite honestly, the socioeconomic impact study wasn't too valuable because it came too late in yeah. the process. Kasman, this must frustrate you no end. I mean, and you've also been part of, uh, I suppose, business leadership over the last three years that got involved um, post Ntlantla uh, Nene sacking um, that, that kind of, I, I don't know if I could say that you backed Pravin Gordon and you backed, um, I guess, Cyril Ramaphosa's investment drive, etc. I mean, to see him sign this bill into law, you must um, feel 
<laughs> I don't yeah. I don't know what uh, maybe there are a few expletives that go around your head I don't know yeah look I mean bankers never swear we, we, <laughs> we petitioned him the response we got was that our petition and our request will be referred to the Department of Trade and Industry we then wrote back to his office to say just to remind you this is a committee bill not a department bill the committee referred it to you. So can we assume from your response that the president will not sign it and will refer it to the committee? And we didn't get a response to that. So, and they signed it, right? So I, I think it is it is frustrating because, because we, we devoted a significant amount of time and capacity to this process. Uh, we, in principle, didn't have a problem about debt restructuring for low-income people. Uh, but we, we always took the view that legislation is not necessary given that there are things that are working. Mm. So, so yeah, it's and, and the, the only, I guess, saving grace is that they haven't gazetted an implementation date yet. So I'm hoping that they do see that there are problems and they might then say, let's delay the implementation while they talk to the industry. We'll, we've got an invite or to the department now because it's their bill now to talk to them and see what their plans are. Mm. But uh, it, it is unfortunate and, and what to me is very, very frustrating is that in a context where we need to message from this country that we want to create certainty, we want to create an environment for investment, we want to create an environment for business growth, we actually send out messages that are totally contrary to mm. it. So in the broader scheme of things, this just doesn't help. Yeah. I mean, I do think that the industry, the lending industry, specifically the unsecured lending industry, is problematic. I mean, there's, according to figures I saw this week, about 7.8 million people in South Africa who have about 229 billion rand in unsecured lending debt, of which 56% of them are in default on one other loan they have. I mean, there's a real problem in terms of unsecured lending, but we have the rules but I think a lot, a lot of South African society, the rules haven't been implemented properly. The national credit regulator yeah. seems to be, I would have to say, fast asleep at best. Yeah, so, so the, I think the National Credit Act is a good piece of legislation. Right? I think it actually enables the credit regulator to begin to want to be far more robust in acting against reckless lending by people by lenders who are already registered to the credit regulator but should also be spending more capacity and effort to actually begin to identify those that are not registered with them and see what those people are doing and you know it's not it shouldn't be difficult so you you see these posters on on poles on the street need a loan phone so and so well pick up the phone in front of them and see mm. what they're doing. Mm. And, and they are undoubtedly fly by night, so climb down on those sorts of people, right? Are you saying the guys that uh, promise to bring back my loved ones are also fly yeah, by Exactly, night? exactly. I mean, yeah, you know, they tell me there's a, maybe more of a chance for mine using that than you going to them for credit. <laughs> but uh, so, so I, I think that we, I think we have a habit sometimes in this country of when we have legislation that legislation is not being properly implemented so then where do we go to we want more legislation yeah instead of fixing that up the other thing is that this act now 
puts a significant amount of responsibility on the credit regulator. We don't believe the credit regulator has the capacity at this point in time mm. to do that. And when you say capacity, do you mean skills or do you mean funding? Funding and skills. So credit regulator basically takes over a lot of the counseling issues and so on. And they just don't have those sorts of skills and they don't have the capacity. And, and, and quite honestly, they shouldn't be doing that because it's to a certain extent being referee and player, right? Because they are regulator and they should regulate. Mm. Uh, and so, yeah, so let's see how it goes. Um, but, you know, I, I've also reached the stage where, so somebody in media asked me, so what are you going to do? How are you going to work with government to manage this, ameliorate the problems? And I said, quite honestly, not. I mean, you want to push the legislation that's not going to work, then you've got to take the consequences for it. I mean, you, there's got to be some accountability, right? So are you saying you're just going to step back now and see how it plays out? No, no, we will, we've got to let out to the DTI. So we'll talk to the DTI. We'll see what their thinking is, what the ideas are on implementation and so on. And, and we'll see, depending on what the response we get from them, whether there's any possibility of managing it. So yeah. we're not just going to leave it, but we will, we will engage. Um, Kaz, um, Rob talked about credit and how many, uh, you said uh, people have between 11 and 13 accounts um, and just the amount of credit that's out there. Is part of the problem not that the cost of credit is just too high? And yes, I understand fly-by-night operators and loan sharks who will charge you, what, 50% a month. Um, but it's not just loan sharks and fly-by-night operators. It is also the established listed players like Capitec or African Bank that its credit is very expensive. And this is one of the reasons why people fall into default because the cost of it is just so high. Is that not something that the Banking Association feels has to be dealt with in some way? Well, look, again, the cost, the cost of credit is actually controlled by the NCA. Okay, the NCA has thresholds. Okay, if and and those thresholds were determined by taking into account where banks or, or lenders raise their money, what that costs, and 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 taking into account risk-related issues. Now, now one could argue, and and I remember during the transformation hearings before Yunus Karim in, at SCOF in Parliament, uh, he sort of said at one point that. You know, you've got to acknowledge, Cass, that the bank, the way banks look at and and consider risk, it's disproportionately unfair to primarily the black people, or primarily the poorer people in this country. And 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 there could be an argument to be made for that. Okay, but it's not it's not primarily to black people. Risk is considered on the basis of the particular risk profile of the individual. So if if an individual is unemployed and, and goes for credit, or if an individual has a particular set of income and gets credit on the basis of that income, and then suddenly has a lifestyle change, the cost of their credit is going to change. So I think all of those factors come into account. Uh, certainly the banking association can't do anything about that. But, but I, I think individual banks, uh, if they feel, if they see that the cost of credit is becoming morally unacceptable, mm. then, then I think they act on it. But, but certainly my uh, experience is that, is that banks are not being 
totally irresponsible about the way they're doing the lending. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's uh, the broader socioeconomic conditions are such that people, you know, the 29% unemployment, people are borrowing money to, to, put, food, to put food on the table and sure. so on and so on. And so long as those conditions persist, there will be a demand for lending and lending will happen. And, uh, and if it doesn't happen through the formal sector, it's going to go underground. Exactly. I mean, the average, the average interest rate for a payday loan, sort of a one to three month loan, is about 250%, which is all in, which if you include initiation fees, all these extra ridiculous costs that are la- ladled on, like membership fees for various clubs that you never know yeah, about, yeah. and credit life insurance. I mean, that yeah. is absolutely extortion. No, no, if you're the kind great. of person who needs 5,000 rand for consumption, to be repaying 250% of that yeah. in a couple of months is totally ridiculous. No, no, I, I, I agree. It's, it's, it's un, untenable. Uh, and, and, you know, the, the question is, do you legislate that? I mean, to a certain extent, it is legislated. Uh, I think what needs to be done is, is, one, we should, the regulator should see whether people are keeping to the prescripts of the legislation. And if they're not keeping, go for them, whether it's a bank, whether it's a retailer or anybody mm. else. I think, I think to a certain extent, and whether, you know, we all have our, our ideologies, but to be totally brutal about it, these are market forces, right? Mm. There's, there's, there's demand, uh, the supply is going to meet that demand, and, and, and people are going to pay for it. The, the thing is that if, if one, if there are any lenders who are actually skirting close to the line or going over the line, you must make examples of them. Okay. I, I think that, that the, to me, the first part of call is apply the regulation fully and robustly. But fully across, you know, from the little loan shops. Absolutely. Because uh, cause they seem to be the ones yeah. that f- slip through the no. net and then it's yeah. the banks or, or, or uh, an established business that yeah. you know um, will have to sort of toe the line yeah. that you come down hard yeah. on. Uh, an example is, is African Bank. Just before it went bust in 2013, it was fined, I think, 20 million rand by the credit regulator. That, that I mean, that's a rounding error on all the mon- amount of money they're making. That is a totally ridiculous. It's not a disincentive to stop lending recklessly. And I suppose the proof of the pudding is African Bank did then collapse partly from reckless lending. Yeah, I mean, African banks, I think African banks' business model at that time was not sustainable. Hmm. Uh, one of the, one of the, certainly from what, and, and I'm not in the lending business, but from what they tell me, is that one of the critical issues, particularly in unsecured lending, is that you need to know your customer, right? You need to know history. Yes? And, and one of the best ways of doing that is to also have that customer as a saver. And you, you have a savings record, that's what Capitec is doing, mm. right? And on the basis of the savings record, you do your lending. African Bank didn't have savings. Mm. They didn't have savings accounts. They raised all their money in the market and they lent it out. Mm. Model has changed now, and I think for the better. So, so, and again, I mean, I, I don't have any details of, the, of the, the actual situation at African Bank at the time they were fined. But, you know, if, if the credit regulator fined them 20 million bucks, I would assume that they did some work on it. And they arrived at that figure from some sort of rational uh, and, and data-driven process. Like a dartboard. <laughs> so... Yeah, um, Kaz, do you chat to the the credit regulator as the banking association? We do, I mean, we do. 
Yeah. Is it quite cordial? I mean, what's your relationship like? Yeah, the relationship is okay. Look, I, I, I don't meet them too often. Uh, the people in my market conduct division meet them fairly often, once a quarter or something. Uh, there's also a, a credit industry forum, I think it's called, CIF, CIF on which we sit, other lenders sit, uh, the debt council sit, and so on, that meets fairly regularly. So there's quite a lot of interaction. But, uh, you know, what we're beginning to find, and it's not just in this area, but broadly in government and regulators, so on, that we, that there's a lot of interaction, a lot of committees, a lot of working groups, and we, we're beginning to be stretched thin, and we put in a lot of input, but quite honestly, the output is not that great. Yeah, like this bill. Like this bill, right? So, so you put in a lot of effort, you put in a lot of capacity, you you stretch yourself very thinly, and then you get sort of piecemeal outputs, not not well coordinated, and so on. And we need to do something about that. I think it's the problem. I, I also, I mean, you said something quite quite important earlier, which is that, you know, we we have we see something not working in this country, so our urge is to legislate more as opposed to fix what's there. And it seems to be a problem element, I mean a problematic element throughout our entire political economy. We have the NHI, which is which is trying to fix something that, you know, is they might as well initially try and fix the, the public hospitals. We have, we have the situation when people are now talking about the death penalty, which is totally unconstitutional for a start. But secondly, that's because our actual existing policing isn't working properly. We seem to overreach the whole time and think more legislation fixes this. How do we tell our policymakers and the people running our country that that's not the way to go about doing things? By talking to them all the time. Uh, <laughs> do they listen? Uh, so NHI, let me, I've been through my, my, my role at BUSA, I've been interacting and we had a very fruitful meeting with the minister last week, Minister of Health, uh, I think we issued a statement yesterday. We've agreed a five-a-side to look at areas where, of ambiguity and lack of clarity and bid that down and settle that where there's differences in principle to negotiate and engage on that and see where we can reach agreement. And then where we can't agree, suggest some deadlock-breaking mechanism. So so I think that's healthy. Right? Uh, uh, we've we've indicated that in principle, of course, we want equitable health care. But but we, you know, we just don't have the resources in this country to to waste. So we should be using and optimizing public and private sector resources to actually develop equitable health care, and that should be the aim. Mm. Uh, and the ministers say yes, that is the aim. Okay, but proof is in the pudding. So we'll work away at that. But yeah, I I, I think you know. I think that we need to continue engaging with government. I think I think we need to continue to push this narrative that what we need to do is we need to ensure that what we have is made efficient and actually it does deliver services to people, be it, be it law and order, be it water, be it whatever else. Uh, utilize, and I think we need to change this narrative of how some people in government think about the private sector. Mm. The bottom line is that the private sector has substantial resources and capacity, okay? And and under the right conditions, those resources and capacity will be brought to bear. There's no two ways about it. I mean, we've used, spent a lot of time since Batabilek Lamini was taken out of social services. Before that, she wouldn't want to do, work with us at the banks. But after she left, 
we spend a phenomenal amount of time with Sasa and very good productive time mm. to sort out the social grant stuff. So a lot of social grant banks started opening up accounts for social grants people. And this is not money-making stuff. We said this is in the national interest. We need to get it right. And a lot of social grants go through bank accounts, mm. right? On the back of that, NASFAS has approached us to say, look, can we work with them to see? So, so that private sector capacity that can be brought to bear in the national interest and can be brought to bear in economic development. So, you know, take our infrastructure projects. If we just identify the three or four top projects, get them structured to, so that we get them to market, and, and, and the private sector will bid for it. I mean, the renewable projects, you know, 76, 78% of the, bid, of the money came from banks mm. in this country. Mm. Okay, and so the money is there. Corporates have money in banks. Uh, they don't want to keep that money in banks. They're not keeping that money in banks because that's where they're earning income on the money. They're actually losing money on that. Uh, if you compare it to if they invested productively into new businesses and so on, right? So why isn't aren't they investing? Why isn't business doing business? Not because they don't want to, uh, because the conditions just aren't there. And we've got to work together to create this condition. It's got to be. The only agenda on the table has got to be economic growth and, and job creation on the back of that. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. As we'll leave it there then. <laughs> Thanks for joining us in the okay. leaders this afternoon. That's it. That's it. <laughs> Kaz Kapadia, head of the Banking Association. Mm.